Tim, thank you for leading us in worship. One other announcement that we, just in the busyness of schedule, did not mention this week, but we are doing communion today at the end of service after the Q&A. So uh, if you want to uh, get a little bit of bread and some juice, even if it's some Ritz crackers or something, the Lord knows. So we will accept that this morning. Uh, let's get the elephant. Let's, let's address the elephant in the room. Yes, my hair looks different. All right. So I went to go get dreads, get it locked up in dreads on Friday right before Josh and Hannah's rehearsal, and they told me I got to sit under the dryer. I haven't sat in the dryer my whole life. And so she said, listen, you can either, the dryer's going to take some time, which would have made me really late for the rehearsal, or she said, I can cornrow it. That'll be quick and last longer. So I said, do that because I got to go. And so I haven't had cornrows since 2002. I feel like Kawhi Leonard's chubby little big brother. So we will just accept that. So yes, 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 yes. My kids laugh at it. My wife can't stand it. Such is life. All right, today we're going to talk about what I call the way out. We've had a number of discussions throughout the years, but particularly in the last few weeks, about race and politics. And I want to, I want to make it clear that for, for whatever reason, in this particular conversation, which really stems from primarily, but not exclusively, George Floyd's death at the hands of cop Derek Chauvin, this particular issue of race and what's exploded has been more political than I've seen before, which is why politics has come up, because in many ways, who you, whatever, however you view that situation or wherever your grief goes is what people label you politically. So if your grief goes towards George Floyd or you support that or, or people who say things like Black Lives Matter, or if you support that, then you're a liberal left, you're, on the, you're the left. And if you don't, if you're more worried about the looting and the rioting, then you're on the right, then you're conservative right. And there's no, you just can't be a human being. You can't just be Man, I'm upset at this or that. You can't be anything now. You have to be either left or right, and therefore politics has entered in our discussion. In my 12 years of being a pastor here, I've rarely talked about politics. I talk about things that will affect and are affecting our church, and I will do that to the day I'm no longer a pastor in this church, whether by, God forbid, my own moral failings or, or the Lord calling me home or, or, or some retirement, whatever that looks like. As long as I'm here, I'm going to address what I think is going to affect our church, and I will take all of the smoke of people who don't like it because it's what my responsibility, it's Mike's responsibility, and we feel called to do that. The issue of this isn't about politics to me, it's about, it's about humanity and how do we navigate as Christians in a culture that is highly politicized. Even race, now, now, anytime you talk about race, it's going to define which side are you on, left or right, even if you don't even have a side. That's the context we find ourselves in. So what we see happening in the culture, or what I've defined as theopolitical, theolytical gospel versus the biblical gospel, and where the theolytical gospel is more about compliance, it's about you agreeing to the narrative regardless and not questioning 
anything that you see happening. It's what I've said historically is subscription. And by subscription, I mean capitalistic subscription. By that, I mean all these organizations and all this stuff. All of a sudden, everybody's about Juneteenth. You know, I'm getting emails from people like, happy Juneteenth for the first time. And on one level, hey, that's cool. They're recognizing that. On another level, it's like, is this really matter to you or is this what the culture is doing? Is this about compliance to the culture? One day, Starbucks says, you can't support this. The next day, oops, changed our mind. We can support that. Why? Because it's politically correct. It's economically wise to submit to the culture. It's what the biblical framework in 2 Corinthians 7 would call worldly sorrow versus godly sorrow. I don't believe it. And you, you can, but I don't believe it. It says science is compliance. No, it isn't. Science might be contemplation. Science might actually, silence might actually be wisdom. But it, 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 it threatens you into having to assume a position. And if you don't, then that's a political position on its own. But everything isn't political, especially for the believer. Sometimes we're just processing what does it mean to live in a culture as a Christian? And it's not always clear what we should do, how we should think about some of these things. The compliance, the theological gospel is about adversaries. If you're not for me, you're against me. So if you don't agree with me, then you're on the other side. That's not the biblical gospel. The biblical gospel says there's no wall of hostility. There's no Greek or Jew or slave or free or man or woman, but all are in Christ. It's united in a person, not in who those people vote for. The biblical gospel is not about compliance in the way that the worldly gospel is, a theological gospel. The biblical gospel is about inheritance. And if we're going to find a real way out of this race, sort of white supremacy versus social justice warrior versus all these different categories versus this adversarial culture that we find ourselves in that's only going to, I think, get bigger and bigger and more detrimental to the church, and our church is not exempt from this, we're going to have to be rooted in a biblical gospel and a framework that helps us understand, okay, it's not about compliance. This is about inheritance. The biblical gospel is about inheritance. And a couple weeks ago, in, in the State Balance, verse 1, I said this, that the gospel is good news when we hear it, but it becomes a responsibility once we believe it. And that's where the guard, the gospel from 1 Timothy 6, verse 20 comes in. Guard the gospel, protect it. That is now a responsibility for every believer. And it's not the gospel message, it's the morality that is accompanied by the message. We're to guard it because it's being threatened in each of us. And we live in a culture where competing gospels are at work. Now, this issue of inheritance is a fundamental biblical theme. Every one of us understand this theme but I don't know if we process it as deeply as the Bible does. In fact, you, we could do a biblical theology on just the theme of inheritance, and we would be blown away how much inheritance, the language of it, specific word, and even the idea of inheritance 
is in the Bible that God gave us so that we can process what does inheritance actually mean for the believer. So let me give you a couple of examples, and then we're going to zoom in on one particular passage to help us create a framework for the way out of this debacle between race and all this stuff and everything that we got to choose the side. We're going to find a way out, I believe, from the scriptures today and then two weeks from today in the final installment of this particular theme. Now, we know this from, we don't have to turn there to Genesis 3, verse 1 through 6. We know that we've inherited from Adam and Eve. We've inherited from Adam and Eve a sin nature. In fact, Romans 5 illuminates this. Romans 5, verse 12 through 14. It'll be on your screen. Thank you, Phil. Romans 5 says this, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, right, for everyone, in this way, death spread to all people because all sin. So here we go. We've inherited this from Adam, right, this desire to define good and evil on our own, which is what sin is. I define good and evil apart from God. This is death spread to all people because all sin. In fact, sin was in the world before the law, but sin is not charged to a person's account when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who did not sin in the likeness of Adam's transgression. He is a type of the coming one. Now, I'm not going to explain all of this. You can go back and listen to the. I think we did Romans 5 like 10 years ago. You can go back and listen to it on the website. It's not 10 years ago, actually, but it feels like it. I'm not going to explain all of that, but there's a sense of we've inherited this from Adam. And then Romans 5, 18 to 19 changes what we've inherited. It says this, so then, as though one trespass, there is condemnation for everyone. So also through one righteous act, there is justification leading to life for everyone. So here we go. So Adam, we inherit sin. And in Christ, we inherit this justification of, of being declared not guilty before God, even though we have sinned. This is an inheritance that comes from Christ. Verse 19, for just as through one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so also through one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. So here's this language of inheritance, and it doubles down in Romans 8. In Romans 8, the last chapter in Romans that we were in 22 years ago, it says this, verse 16 and 17, it says, The Spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. And if children, also heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. So here we have the actual language of inheritance. The heir, we are we're an heir of God and a co-heir with Christ, meaning we're going to receive some of his inheritance because we believe in what Jesus Christ did, both the message of the gospel and the morality of it. So it says we're co-heirs with Christ. But here's the condition. If indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. So there's part of the condition. This isn't just, hey, I believe in Christ and I live however and do whatever and believe whatever. But no, we suffer with him. We suffer the, the morality that it takes to be a Christian. We suffer not giving in to the temptations, even in a culture like ours, where it imbues the morality that's opposite of the gospel. It imbues, it, it, it calls for adversary. It calls for anger. It calls for sinful judgment. It calls for bitterness. It calls for sinful judgment. And it, and it promotes this as if this is the way out. I don't think so. Inheritance is a theological concept, but it's also 
a very practical one. In fact, Jesus proves the point in John chapter 15, verses 18 through 20. Here's what Jesus says. He says, if the world hates you, understand that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. However, because you were not of the world, but because I have chosen you out of it, the world hates you. So look at the connection. The world inheritance, the word isn't there. Listen to what Jesus is saying. If the world hates you, remember it hated me first. The world's going to hate you. You're going to inherit the hatred that I receive from the world because you believe in me. You can't follow Jesus and have everyone just love you if you truly follow Jesus. Because if you truly follow Jesus, you're going to oppose, biblically speaking, a lot of what people think is a good thing. Therefore, people are not going to like you. He says this in verse 20. Remember the word I spoke to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. It is my conviction that a lot of Christians aren't persecuted because we don't really keep Jesus's word. We don't share the message. And we compromise at times on the morality, so we don't look that much different. We get angry when they get angry. We judge when they judge. We are co-heirs with Christ, but we've also inherited a hatred. Why? Because Satan is still here. Remember I said a few, a few sermons ago, Adonai moved in, but Adam didn't move out. Now to think about all the people that Adonai didn't move into. The spirit of God is not in the culture. It's in particular people within this culture, within this world. We've inherited hatred from the world. Sometimes when, I, when I'm hanging out with people and they'll see somebody that they know, and I'll, I'll say this, hey, don't, you, don't introduce me as your pastor. You can just introduce me as your friend. And I don't say that because I'm ashamed of being a pastor. I say that because I don't know what this person thinks of pastors. Let me explain what I mean. Because I'm a pastor, I have inherited whatever this person thinks about pastors. So if they think pastors are money hungry, pedophiles, sleep with other people's wives, if that's their experience or that's what they think, once you introduce me as your pastor, I've inherited that perspective, even if I haven't even said a clean word to them. I've inherited that just because that's their framework about people. So I often don't tell people, introduce me as your pastor. Let me get to know them. We have fun. We talk. And then maybe before we leave, they say, what do you do? I'm a pastor. Oh, really? You're a pastor? But now they can view me as me, not as sort of what I, I so I've broken some of the inheritance. And I feel like it's a responsibility of mine to, to not submit to the and not go along with the perspective, especially if it's sinful of what they think. But I've inherited that and I understand that. I didn't do anything to earn that from this person, but I get it. It's an inheritance. So it's theological but it's very practical. In fact, to prove the point even further, in 1 Peter 1.18, he says as much in exhorting believers. I, I love this verse because this is, this is an interesting way to say this. This is what he says in 1 Peter 1.18. This is a CSB translation, by the way. But he says this, For you know that you were redeemed from your empty way of life, 
inherited from your fathers. So here it's practical. It's not just the theological sense. It's not just the theology, right? It starts with the theology, but then it gets to our reality, right? Our theology and our reality have to meet. And so here's a passage where our theology and reality meet. We've inherited, all humanity has inherited sin. And our reality, Peter says, is you were redeemed from the empty way of life inherited from your fathers. Inherited. It became yours. It says you've been redeemed from your empty way of life inherited from your fathers. Not with perishable things like silver or gold. And he goes on to talk about the beauty of Christ, what we've been, we've been redeemed from this sinful inheritance that we all have. So inheritance is a fundamental biblical theme. We could do a series on inheritance. Carl and Dr. Lee should write a book on inheritance. Shoot, I might write the introduction. Inheritance is a fundamental biblical category that a lot of Christians don't really focus on. And so, I, and I believe this inheritance of having this perspective is the actual way out of this debacle, particularly with race, particularly as race and politics intermerge. And now what you think about this act or this killing or this person or that person or this group of people, or that group of people somehow designates who you are, like you're not a human being, you're just left or right or whatever. There's a framework that we're now going to look at that I believe will help us process the way out. Our primary passage today from here on out will be 2 Kings chapter 22, verses 8 through 13. The Old Testament, yeah. All scriptures breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, rebuking, and training in righteousness. Let me give you some background to this passage before we actually go through it. So this is the background. This is about King Josiah. Now, you don't have to turn there, but about two chapters back in chapter 20, beginning in verse 12, we see the end of King Hezekiah, who was considered a good king. Now, there were 39 kings in Judah over a, a, a significant time span. There were 20 in the north. They were all evil kings and were taken captive by Assyria in 722, roughly. And there were 19 kings in the south. And six of those kings were considered good, but three of the six uh, became evil. And one actually was bad and then sort of repented, but is still designated as an evil king. So at the end of, of Hezekiah's life, he allows the Babylonians to come in and for whatever reason, he just shows them everything he has. They come inside, he shows them all the gold, all the silver, all the stuff that they have. And then when he leaves, the prophet says, hey, what did, those, what, did those, what did those Babylonians come do? And they said, oh, I showed them all the stuff. He said, what'd you show them? He said, I showed them everything I have. And the, he said, thus says the Lord because of this. And he says that those Babylonians are going to come and overthrow the southern kingdom. But he says, because Hezekiah was a good king, it won't happen in his lifetime. The funny thing is Hezekiah kind of says, the scripture says, I'm paraphrasing, but Hezekiah basically says, all right, cool. I mean, it's not going to happen in my lifetime, so I ain't really tripping. <laughs> now, he doesn't use that language, right? But he says pretty much that. Look at 2 Kings 20, 19 or something. You'll see, like, you're like, that Hezekiah? All right, so after Hezekiah dies, his son Manasseh becomes king. And listen to what it says. I'm going to read it. You don't have to go there unless you want to. 
But it says in 2 Kings 21, verses 2 and 3, it says that he, Mammon say, uh, Hezekiah's son, it said he did what was evil in the Lord's sight, imitating the detestable practices of the nations that the Lord had dispossessed before the Israelites. He rebuilt the high places that his father Hezekiah had destroyed and reestablished the altars for Baal. He made an Asherah as King Ahab of Israel had done. He also bowed in worship to all the stars in the skies and served them. Then look at, look at in verse 16, if you want to go there, if you're there. But it says this in verse 16 in chapter 21 of 2 Kings. Manasseh also shed so much innocent blood that he filled Jerusalem with it from one day to another. This was an addition to his sin that he caused Judah to commit so that they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So this is the king after Hezekiah. Now, 2 Chronicles 33 does highlight that Manasseh repented. Does say that in 2 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles and Chronicles and Kings are sort of different ways to look at the same story often. And it says that he repented, but he's still listed as an evil king. Said he shed so much blood. Then his son Amon becomes king, or as I like to pronounce him, Amon. He becomes king. So in 2 Kings 21, beginning in verse 20, it says, Amon is evil. And he did what was evil in the Lord's sight, just as his father Manasseh had done. He walked in all the ways his father had walked. He served the idols his father had served and bowed in worship to them. He abandoned the Lord God of the ancestors and did not walk in the ways of the Lord. Amon's servants conspired against him and put the king to death in his own house. So he was so wicked that his own servants killed him. And look at what it says. This is what it says in verse 24. The common people, so the people who were not living in the king's house, just the regular folk like you and me, the common people killed all those who had conspired against the king, Amon. And they made his son Josiah king in his place. So Josiah is eight years old and becomes king. Insane. The scripture says that when he turns 26 in the 18th year of his reign, it talks about what happened. And this is our passage beginning right here in verse 8 of 2 Kings 22. It says, the high priest Hilkiah told the court secretary Shaphan, I have found the book of the law in the Lord's temple. This was Deuteronomy. They were rebuilding the temple, Josiah was, and they found the book of Deuteronomy somewhere in the temple. And he gave the book to Shaphan who read it. The court secretary Shaphan went to the king and reported, your servants have emptied out the silver that was found in the temple and have given it to those doing work, doing the work, those who do, do, has given it to those doing the work, those who oversee the Lord's temple. Then the court secretary Shaphan told the king, the priest Hilkiah has given me a book and Shaphan read it in the presence of the king. So he reads the book of Deuteronomy. I know we have short attention spans, but they'll read 33 chapters, 35, 40 chapters. They'll read them. In one sitting, they don't read like 10 verses and be like, man, I'm wiped out. And here's what happened beginning in verse 11. It says, when the king, when Josiah heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. Then he commanded the priest Hilkiah, Ahikam, son of Shaphan, Akbor, son of Micaiah, the court secretary Shaphan, and the king's servant, Asiah. Here's what he said to them. Go and inquire of the Lord for me the people and all Judah about the words in this book that have been found, that has been found. For great is the Lord's wrath that is kindled against us because our ancestors have not obeyed the words of this book 
in order to do everything written about us. So let's look at what happened here. Let's break this down. There are four things that happened in this passage and then a fifth one that's at this, that begins in verse in chapter 23. We're going to look at these to see a framework for the way out through the lens of inheritance. Okay, back to verse 11. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. Now, he's not, this isn't like some Hulk Hogan coming out in WWF, like, you know, brothers, I need my vitamins, and he tears his shirt to get ready to wrestle. That's not what he's talking about. All right, his reaction to hearing the book of Deuteronomy read and the scriptures read was deep remorse. There was deep sadness. Ripping garments, weeping aloud are all biblical signs of deep grief. When he heard the law and realized they haven't been doing it, he was affected emotionally. And you can't be that way unless you really want to glorify the Lord. He grieves that they've disobeyed God. He hears this and he tears his clothes. The second thing that we see, he says in verse 13, go and inquire of the Lord for me, the people in all Judah about the words in this book that has been found. So his first response sets a pattern for how to process. He says, go inquire of the Lord for me. So it's personal. It's personal. I want to think about what does the Lord think about me personally? So go ask the Lord. Go speak to the Lord, talking to everyone who has a relationship with the Lord in that room. So speak to the Lord and ask about me. Then he talks about the communal. So it's personal and then it's communal. The people. And then it's national and all of Judah. So here he's concerned. So there's a deep grief, there's a sadness at disobeying the Lord, and then he's concerned about himself, about the people, and about all of Judah. The next thing he says in verse 13, for great is the Lord's wrath that is kindled against us. So he recognizes before he hears anything from the Lord, he told them to go seek the Lord, go cry out to the Lord for me, the people, and the nation. So it's personal, communal, and national. Go Before he hears a word back from them, before he's even done letting them go, he recognizes that God is angry slash judging them, going to judge them because they have disobeyed the words in the book. For him to acknowledge that is biblical maturity. Because he's rebuilding the wall. He's rebuilding the temple. In fact, in 2 Chronicles, it actually lists, if it, it, it lists before this scene all these reforms that Josiah had done. All these reforms. Now remember, he's seen nothing but evil. His father and his grandfather were evil. He has to go back to his great-grandfather, Hezekiah. He's seen nothing but evil, and he recognizes, he has the maturity to recognize that God is angry. Even though he's doing good things, God is angry 
because the people have not kept the words of the book. And that's what he says next in verse 13. Because our ancestors have not obeyed the words of this book in order to do everything written about us. This is a key point to what he says. He says, for great is the Lord's wrath that is kindled against us because our ancestors have not obeyed the words in this book. You notice he didn't say because we haven't. He said our ancestors. This is a significant truth. Because Josiah wasn't necessarily claiming personal culpability for what the culture was now. He wasn't saying that. He was saying our ancestors have not obeyed the words in this book and we've inherited that. We've inherited the disobedience from them. In fact, he wasn't culpable. Second Kings 22 verse 2 actually says this about Josiah. He did what was right in the Lord's sight and walked in the ways of his ancestor David. He did not turn to the left or to the right. So he's not saying, look at what I've done wrong. His grief is not just saying, oh, look at what I've done wrong. He's saying we've inherited the disobedience of our ancestors and God is angry. And so we've also inherited God's judgment as a result of it. Oh, no. He doesn't claim personal culpability as much because he understands this is about inheritance. There was no pressure for compliance. They inherited the patterns of disobedience, the blind spots of Manasseh, who was evil and, and caused Judah to sin. And they inher he inherited Amon. He inherited his evil. There was more evil than what Manasseh, his father, had done. He was so evil, his servants killed him. And then the culture killed, it would be like people killing the president and the, the cabinet killing the president and then the community, the, the rest of us rushing and killing people. That's how evil he was. His own folks was like, man, we got to take him out. Josiah inherited this. He didn't do it. He didn't do this. And yet, there was residue. There was sin that transitioned on down through the generations because of what other people had done, the people who were supposed to honor the Lord years ago. And Josiah has the biblical maturity enough to recognize, look what we've inherited. He didn't say what we've done. He said our ancestors did it. So he's grieving over what the ancestors have done because he's inherited both a, a, a empty way of life and he's the one trying to fix it. He's inherited the judgment of God. Exodus 36, 34 verses 6 and 7 is a, is a wonderful piece and I think what Josiah is maybe aware of and if he isn't, He's, he's, he's realizing the promise that God made in Exodus 34 is becoming true for his particular situation right then and there. So God is talking to Moses and he says this. This is after the golden calf, after people get punished and people are killed after that. But, but Israel is not ultimately destroyed. And I, Moses asked God not to destroy Israel so that the people, the Egyptians and others, wouldn't mock 
God for bringing them through the Red Sea only to kill them. And so he says this to Moses in Exodus 34, verse 6 and 7. He says, the Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth. Verse 7, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin, but he will not leave the guilty unpunished, bringing the father's iniquity on the children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. So God says, listen, I'm not playing. I'm a God of, of mercy. I'm compassionate. I'm gracious. But I'm not letting the guilty go unpunished. And they're going to be punished to the third and fourth generation, bringing the father's iniquity on the children. What do you see that happen? Manasseh, Amon, and just you see that happening. And then think about if it's just, that's just people. We're, like, we're not even talking about all of the many people who followed the wickedness. These are things that he realizes. Our ancestors have not obeyed the words of this book, and we've inherited it. So go seek the Lord, because we're in trouble. Lastly, and this isn't in our passage, it's in chapter 23 of 2 Kings. There was a fifth thing that he did. This is the fifth. He made a covenant in the Lord's presence. So the king sent messengers and they gathered all the elders of King of Judah in Jerusalem to him. Then the king went to the Lord's temple with all the men of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, as well as the priests and the prophets, all the people from the youngest to the oldest. He read in the hearing of the words, he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the Lord's temple. Next, the king stood by the pillar and made a covenant in the Lord's presence to follow the Lord and to keep his commandments. So there's a his decrees and his statutes with all his heart and with his, all his soul in order to carry out the words of this covenant that were written in this book. All the people agreed to the covenant. So here he, he sees these five categories. He grieves. He, he has to inquire, seek the Lord. He understands that there's judgment coming. He understands what they've inherited something that they didn't necessarily do, but they've inherited it or he has. And then he makes a new covenant. He makes a vow to honor the Lord. And he gets all the people to agree with him. So there's the framework from 2 Kings 22. And I think we can take this framework and put it on the map of our culture and it would apply almost perfectly. So what does that mean for us then? How do these five components matter to us? Well, we've inherited what I've called a theopolitical gospel. It's a gospel that is not biblical. And I've laid that out historically. I'll get back to that in a second. We've inherited that. You look at the culture today. Many people, not just me, many believers, are recognizing that the salt that the church once had, as the Bible says, is being trampled underfoot. The church doesn't have really any influence anymore. It's so interwoven into the culture that you read stuff from believers and think, fam, what do you actually believe? But the thing that I'm not seeing a lot of is grieving. It's grieving. 
if the responsibility of the Christian is to guard the deposit, that's 1 Timothy 6, 20, we're supposed to guard the message and the morality of the gospel. We've lost it. Not in every single person, obviously, sure. But there's a sense where when you look at the landscape of whatever you call the evangelical church, I'd say in the last 10 years, I've seen more division than unity. Just growing and growing and growing and growing. I know of men who were friends that did conferences together in 2010, 2008, that are now, we just can't, we have to part ways. I'm talking about real brothers, real theologians that people know. But I've talked to them, they've been like, yeah, man, we just don't even, I always love them, but I just can't fellowship with them. Why? Because of these issues. Because of his thoughts on race. Because of the political side of things. We've lost some of the greatest truths the church should be known for. Justice, mercy, and righteousness. I think on many levels we've lost the mission of Christianity because we've lost the morality of it. I mean, all honestly, how can you share the gospel with people that scroll your Facebook wall and see you arguing over points that aren't even about Jesus? And I'm guilty of it, too. I've done it. I'm not coming down the mountain with two stone tablets. But I'm but I'm but I'm committed to not being that way. I'm committed to grieving over this. The next thing he does is he inquires. He seeks the Lord. Now he asked these other men to do it, but as believers, when Jesus, after he died, the curtain was torn in two, so God let all believers have access to him. First Peter 2 talks about we're a royal priesthood, a peculiar people, a holy nation, that we have access to God. but you'll still find believers struggling to read their Bibles for longer than an hour. Struggling to pray for longer than a few moments. Struggling to seek the Lord. Haven't cried out to God in maybe ever or a long time. We've become a little desensitized to what the Bible says we should do. So don't get me wrong. There are people seeking the Lord, praying. This isn't a blanket reality. But hey, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego got taken along with the rest of the people. So we know that not everybody was unrighteous when Babylon came. That's the book of Daniel. Not everybody was unrighteous. That book proves it. So I'm not saying everyone's doing this, no one's doing this, but there's a sense when you look at the landscape, you just think, what, what's happening to the church? Even within our church, what's happening? The third component is judgment. He recognized that the Lord was angry and judging. Now, I can't point to a verse to prove that. But he didn't go to a verse unless 
he may have read Deuteronomy when they read Deuteronomy 28 from verse like 13 to like 60. When the Lord said, this is what will happen when you disobey, he may have just applied that. But I believe we're experiencing judgment from the Lord. I said as much in the Revelation series. I've said as much through podcast music from this pulpit. I totally believe that. I cannot point to a, a specific verse to prove it, but here's why I think that way. Because we eva- when you evaluate the fruit, you see what, Je- what, what Josiah did was when he heard the book of the law, he thought about all of the, de- he evaluated the fruit of the people from his understanding and was like, we're in trouble. And he said he evaluated history. He said, our ancestors have not obeyed the words in this book. He understood we're in trouble. He evaluated the history. Well, we're we're Christians in America that's 413 years old, give or take. Let's evaluate the fruit of all that gospel preaching for 400 years. And now anyone make a case that God is supremely glorified and should be pleased that 413 years later, this is where we find ourselves. The church more fragmented, the culture racially polarized, people all over the place, people leaving the church because it has no confidence in the church. And this is the glorious gospel that has been proclaimed and preached for 400 years. Everyone talks about preaching the gospel, but no one wants to stop and evaluate the fruit of all that gospel preaching. How does the gospel allow for slavery and racism under the banner of the church? Oh, they're people of their times. They had blind spots. Now, you had scripture. You had scripture. We all have blind spots. We get it. But hundreds of years of that? is not just a blind spot. Jesus says, judge a tree by the fruit that it bears. So what is the fruit? I'm not talking about has there been any good fruit? Of course, of course there are. But that's not due to to American church history. That's due to the Lord making sure that there are people who truly believe in him all over the place. That has nothing to do with the historical example that was set. That has to do with the fact that the Lord is the one who saves. And the proof of it is that there are people who are Christians, preferably black. Because we're the ones that experience most of the torture, the suffering. The fact that people still believe in the church and in the Lord today is completely true that God is the one who saves. Jesus said, judge a tree by the fruit that it bears. He said this to the Pharisees in Matthew 23, 23. And I think this is an indictment on the church historically. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. All the, these are the religious, these are the theologians of the day. You pay a tenth of mint, dill, and cumin, and yet you have neglected the more important matters of the law, of the law, justice, mercy, and righteousness. These things should have been done without neglecting the others. Now, again, I can't point to a verse to prove it. But man, I can do like Josiah and look at the history, look at the ancestry that I've inherited and think, "Mm, I think we're in trouble. And it's interesting, I listen to a lot of theologians debate back and forth. Oh, that's just, there's no, you know, systemic racism, that's cultural Marxism, all this different stuff. 
And they keep thinking, oh, this is the liberal left. But why isn't it, hey, maybe God is actually judging us for the way that the church has historically, our ancestors, the way that the church has historically acted. I mean, how dare we think that God doesn't care enough about his character and the gospel that there would be no consequences in this life? What if God is actually sovereignly allowing an organization like Black Lives Matter to accomplish some things that the church wouldn't? Because we're so busy fighting over these issues and then these people got thousands of people marching down the street. I'm not talking about riots. I'm talking about people actually marching for some change. Whether you believe that change should happen or not is incidental to the fact that God is saying a secular organization can accomplish this. Martin Luther King, the same thing. I listen to theologians say, oh, he wasn't a Christian. He was, a, he was wrong on the gospel. He was an adulterer. He was all these things. He didn't have sound doctrine. Okay, let's say all those things are true. Then shame on the people who had sound doctrine. Because all that means is that God had to use an adulterer, a dude who was wrong on the gospel, that didn't have sound doctrine, to bring about shame to the church because it didn't have an image of God theology that treated black people, even black believers, the same. That's not an indictment on Martin Luther King. That's an indictment on the church. Black Lives Matter is an indictment of, isn't the leftist agenda? Maybe so. But it's an indictment on the church. I believe this to be true. This is judgment we're experiencing. We've inherited an empty way of living out the gospel. I'm not saying there's something wrong with the gospel. And I'm not saying that there's not truth being lived out. There's truth being lived out in this church. But our ancestry has delivered us an empty way of living out the gospel which I have dubbed theolitical for theopolitical. Now, because I rap and stuff, I like to come up with clever little names. So theolitical is something I can say I dubbed, but the idea is not mine. The name may be, but the idea is not. In, a, in an academic study by, by a man named Melvin B. Endy Jr., he wrote, and this is, you have to find these on these like academia.edu type journals. But he wrote a study called Just War, holy war, and millennialism in revolutionary America. And here's what he says. I'm just going to pick up what he's talking about. He's making a case for uh, this theopolitical truth. And here's what he says. And I'm jumping into the middle. I don't feel like explaining all of it. He said, it's become, it, has become to be, it has come to be generally agreed that by the 1770s, religious leaders were incorporating, by the 1770s, yeah, religious leaders were incorporating political developments into their salvation history and urging their people to regard the revolution, so the American Revolution against the Brits, to regard the revolution as a holy war between the forces of Christ and Antichrist to bring about the millennium. The thesis of this article is that the large majority of ministers who published sermons during the revolutionary era justified the war effort by a rationale that was more political than religious. They believed that the war deserved the support of true Protestants, and they assumed a responsibility for motivating their congregations to help achieve this victory. Now, he goes on to prove his point and lays it out in amazing fashion. And another, another thing, I have a book right here called Sacred Scripture, Sacred War by James P. Byrd. Excellent book. And this book is filled with 
actual sermons that were preached both by pastors and non-pastors, politicians, using the Bible for political advancement, which was to, to break free from Britain, the tyranny of Britain. Let me just read. There's a lot here, just in the introduction alone. There's so many things I highlighted I wanted to read, but time doesn't permit. And this isn't a book study. But I want to read just a small portion of this. It says this. Much was at stake in military preaching, which is why George Washington was skilled chaplain's strongest defender and the NEP chapter's chaplain's harshest critic. Whether he was commanding troops from Virginia in the French and Indian War or leading the Continental Army in the Revolutionary War, Washington wanted chaplains to accompany him. Patriotism, Washington knew, required commitment to virtuous disciplines and a sacrificial loyalty, and he needed preachers who could command patriotic fervor from the Bible to the battlefield. And I want to read another quote. It says this, even before the revolution, many colonists could not assess their wars without citing scripture, and they could not comprehend with scripture without referencing war. For them, the Bible was not distant, a distant ancient text. It was an engaging universal drama, relevant and realistic, and interaction with scripture, whether through preaching, hearing, writing, or reading, was an engrossing exercise. Certainly not all colonists agreed on how to interpret the Bible. The American Revolution was deeply rooted in ideas derived from the Enlightenment, and these ideas included new critical questions about the Bible and its historical accuracy. Several of the founders, for instance, doubted the historical validity of much of Scripture, including its stories and miracles. Even so, biblical skepticism did not interfere with biblical patriotism. Regardless of any doubts the founders and some ministers may have had, many of them still turned to Scripture to inspire support for the revolution. And this book is filled with it. So here you have this reality that that politics and theology are interwoven. And after the American Revolution is won, you get the Declaration of Independence in 1776, and then you get the Constitution in 1789, and then you get the Bill of Rights in 1791, all great documents. But those three documents then become the trinity of American Christianity. They become the trinity of the governing point, and because the church has already been complicit in wickedness and evil, it follows right along right with it, and it's interwoven, and it becomes about politics. And then here we are a couple hundred years later where people are more passionate about who to vote for than gathering together to pray for those who are in positions of leadership. This is a theological gospel that we've inherited. And I believe God is judging us. I believe so. This is the way out. This is the way out to understand the theology of inheritance. We've inherited an empty way of living out the gospel. This isn't about who do I vote for. This is about where do I ultimately put my trust? People will say, yeah, it's Jesus. But then you get mad at your brother for voting differently than you. You mock and criticize people who think differently than you, even if they're believers. And God is so pleased with that. We've inherited a theological gospel, but in different ways. If you're white, you've inherited a theological gospel. You've inherited a gospel that has made you the standard for all things right and true, despite all the evil that's been done by people who look like you, and if for no other reason, because Jesus 
looks like you, at least according to the paintings. If you're white, you've inherited a gospel presentation and demonstration that was used to subject black people. You didn't do it. Tim, who just led worship, didn't do it. His wife, Beth, didn't do it. Tim's not a racist. But you know what? He has inherited a gospel that people that look like him were racist. He's inherited that. He didn't do it. Beth didn't do it. But if you're white, that's what you've inherited. You've inherited a gospel that was demonstrated to do wickedness towards people because of the color of their skin. You've inherited a gospel that has been hypocritical in its demonstration of love. You've inherited a gospel that's so theological that now, as a result of history, just because you're white, people think you're a white supremacist. Or if you vote conservative, you're a white supremacist. You've inherited that. That's not who you are. You're not even personally culpable unless God reveals that that's true of you. But you've inherited it. You've inherited it. You've inherited a gospel, a theological gospel, that has given you an advantage sometimes financially, but mostly psychologically. Now, I, you've heard me say this plenty of times. I don't like the term white privilege. I understand what people mean. I don't think it's helpful because I think anyone could make a case about privilege in America, even for those of us who don't have the same privileges as others. I think privilege is a sovereign thing. But I, do, I did run across a def, an explanation of white privilege that I thought, would be, that was, I thought was actually helpful. And it says this, and I'm coming into the middle of it. I'm not going to explain what it said before, so take it for what it is. This woman said, this is where the term privilege gets sticky because it can be understood to mean I have a benefit that I shouldn't have, i.e. that we should both be allowed around the store. She was talking about her black friend gets followed in the same stores that she goes in, but she doesn't get followed. And she was saying, it becomes sticky because that we both should be, that I shouldn't have, that we both should be followed around the store. Actually, however, what I'm receiving is the benefit of the doubt, the default assumption that I'm going to be honest until I do or say something to undermine that assumption. What the concept of privilege actually suggests is that we should both get the benefit of the doubt. It is not a privilege because I shouldn't have it. It's a privilege because I have it and other people just as honest as I am do not have it. The term in this context calls attention to an unjust and illogical disparity and expectations. I would 100% agree. It's the psychological privilege. There are black people in our church doing way better than white people financially. But the black people in our church got to tell their kids things that you don't got to tell your kids because you just got to be careful. You got to talk to your kids about how you interact in certain situations. If police are around, whether they're good or bad, you just don't know. You've inherited a gospel that has put you in this position. And it's not your fault. It's not your fault, but this is what you've inherited. This is your Josiah moment. You've inherited all of this. That's not the biblical gospel, though. If you're black, we've inherited a gospel that we have to defend even to other black people. 
We've inherited a gospel that has so subjected us that we have to kind of fight against the notion that Christianity is a white man's religion. We have to go back and do our studies and prove that the church fathers like Origen and Athanasius and Augustine, all the people who European theologians got a lot of their theology from, even Martin Luther made his ecclesiology after the Ethiopian church, which is African, in case you didn't know. We've inherited a gospel that we have to defend that we're not, it's not a white man's religion and we're not brainwashed just because we believe in Jesus. If you're black, we've inherited a gospel that we have to fight. We have to fight against real pain and suffering being seen only as anger and bitterness. Everyone has stats for what happens, but no one wants to talk about the pain that people experience. What about systemic racism? Is it not? We're going to talk about that tonight. Dear God is going to be something else tonight. I would encourage you to be there. There's going to be a lot of information at Dear God tonight that we're going to talk through the consequences of the pathology that I laid out. Please come to Dear God tonight, 6 p.m. If you're black, you've inherited a gospel that has it's taken away our identities and given us new ones. Not in Christ, but made in the image of needing to be accepted by people who are white. If you're black, we have to guard against letting our blackness be so respected that we put our hope in other things than God. Or that we find our true identity in that. I've seen quite a few people in the last seven years today walking away from Christianity and getting back to their black roots, African roots, because, and we've, that's what we've inherited. If you're black and a Christian, man, we've inherited it. We've inherited a gospel that has done significant damage to us. Not the gospel, but the way people have applied it. And we have to fight. We've inherited a gospel where we often have to submit to things in order for there to be unity. And this is why I love our church. Because there are people who are here that say, that's my pastor. They don't care about that stuff. But there are churches across the country that are not like that. We've inherited a gospel that has made a mockery of our faith. And we have to fight against that. If you're black, your pain and suffering is real. When it's real, I, I'm a product of that. I get it. You know, my mantra, stay balanced, is not because I just got it figured out. It's because my default position is to think that there is all this stuff against black people and I have to push back against that so that I don't allow myself to give in to that reality because I, I know what I've inherited. And part of what has helped me is realizing what I've inherited. So I've inherited the, the empty way of life presented to me. If you're Latino, you've inherited a gospel that has been used as a weapon to create racial disparities. If you're Latino, this gospel has robbed you of your identity, forcing you to choose a side. Do I side with black people or do I side with white people? As if those are the only real options. If you're a Latino, your struggles are a byproduct often. A stat used by other people to make a point. 
If you're Latino, you've inherited a gospel that doesn't include you in the ethnic conversation. Even though you have feelings and your own cross to carry. If you're Latino, you, what happens to you stays over here. You, you guys work that out over there. You're not a part of this larger discussion. You're not included in the conversation. If you're Latino, you've inherited a gospel that has you trapped because you're not white or black, which makes it even easier to feel left out. Even if you go to a church like ours with white and black people, you're not sure what to say because you're a person of color. You're expected to side this way. It has you trapped as if you don't have real feelings and real desires and real struggles that come with being who you are. This is the theological gospel. It's always one versus the other, left versus white, left versus right, black versus white. Doesn't have room for everybody else. Pick a side. If you're Asian, you've inherited a gospel that often overlooks the cross you have to carry. It's a gospel that expects you to sit quietly and be smart and often to side with white people because you're so compliant. If you're, if you're Asian, you, you, you've inherited a gospel that expects intellectual prowess as a virtue and stereotypes you to shame other people, other non-white ethnicities for not acquiring the success you've had. In other words, you've inherited a, a gospel that Christians use and make you a pawn. So when people talk about disparities between income and, and equality, they'll be like, oh, well, Asians are 4.7% of the population and they make more money than white people, so why aren't they oppressed? And you, but they're not really caring about you, you're just a stat to them. And what that does is that pits you against other people as if you're part of the problem and you're just like, I'm just here trying to honor the Lord and do what I gotta do. Just used. If you're Asian. That's the gospel you've inherited. Now, get, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying the gospel is the problem because I wouldn't be sitting here if it was. But this is a Josiah moment. What did we actually inherit? What's happened to the gospel of Jesus Christ? How can we look back at these theologians and read their writings and see such sound doctrine, such good theology, but then we see why didn't it play out to a good culture? Why did Martin Luther King have to say that, that 11 o'clock is the most segregated hour on Sunday mornings? And why is that still very true for much of the people where it doesn't have to be? You've inherited the gospel. Now, I'm not going to go through every ethnicity. Fill in the blank. This is your Josiah moment. What did you inherit? This is the gospel we've inherited. The problem isn't the gospel. The problem is the wickedness that came alongside that gospel that we inherited. And now people think and have expectations for you and I because we profess to believe in the same thing that all these people did. And look at all the evil they've done. So therefore, you must be evil, too. So pick a side. And this is where politics comes into play. I've always said, I don't care who you vote for. I care who you vouch for. Now, if you're all, when everything I said, that this is who you are, this, I'm not saying that's what you would say about yourself. I'm saying this is what I see. You might have your own list. You might disagree with all of it. This is what I see. 
So I'm not speaking for black people, white people, Latinos, Asians, and whoever, but this is what I see. You might think differently, and that's totally fine. This is what I see. Listen, this isn't about white privilege versus social justice warriors. This isn't about the liberal left or the conservative right. This is about presentation versus demonstration. The gospel was presented very well historically, but it was demonstrated very poorly. And now we have people who question the validity of that because of the people that lived before our time. We didn't do it. I know a lot, I got a lot, some, two of my, my, some of my closest friends are white. These dudes are far from racist. I preach at their churches, they fly me out, I do all types of stuff. I have fun with these dudes. These are my dudes. Love them. But they've inherited that. People who look like you, bro. People who look like you, Tim. You've inherited a gospel that subjects people to look like me. And because of that history, now I'm mad at you. And you didn't do anything. You didn't do anything. So now you see why I'm adamant about saying that's not going to happen in our church and why you can leave if that's the position that you have. I'm not I'm not budging on that. No way, because that's divisive. That's not the biblical gospel. We've inherited. Yes, we've inherited an empty way of life. But there's other things that we've inherited. This is about Satan enslaving people versus Christ saving people. This is what this is about. And when we lose sight of the biblical gospel and we get theological, it becomes us versus them. Again, this isn't about don't vote or who you vote for. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about I'm offended at people as if God is not sovereign, because let's put this into perspective. Let's not be selective with our sovereignty. God is sovereignly ordained for us to receive this theological gospel. God has sovereignly allowed George Floyd's video to become the catalyst for all that we're seeing. So we can call it the leftist liberal media. Cool. But God is sovereign over it. He's allowed us to live in this time with the truth. So the question is, how are you going to guard the gospel, the message and the morality of it right now? We know that we've inherited, uh, and there's so many things I could say. There'll be more said tonight on Dear God, just to put the inheritance in context. Again, I'm not talking about the gospel. I'm not saying there's been no fruit. The fact that you and I believe is fruit, but it's not fruit because we have such a credible historical representation of truth, love, justice, and mercy. It's because God says, despite the evil, I'm going to still save people and show my saving power. Not the beauty of what you, no, 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 no. The last thing we need to do is make a covenant with God. What does that covenant look like? That's what we're going to talk about in two weeks. What is that covenant? Josiah made a covenant. What is the covenant we need to make with God? The five components are grieving, Inquiring, which is, means to seek the Lord, recognizing judgment because we received an inheritance. And so we need to make a covenant. This is the way out. You don't need to renounce white privilege, get on your knees and do nothing. 
If you get on your knees, it better be because you dropped something and you're picking it up. Don't get on your knees and do none of that. Unless it's real biblical contrition and you feel like that's a demonstration of biblical contrition. Other than that, don't you dare get on your knees. Don't denounce no white privilege or nothing. That's, all that stuff is a smokescreen. It's deeper than that. This is about Satan and Christ. And what do we do in the midst of it? If you're black, don't let, don't let, don't let what they say that we got to believe what they say. We don't got to believe everything because we're black. We don't got And we're allowed to experience pain and suffering and trauma and work through that. They act like we just don't have no feelings. Like we're just, it's just one, we're just one thing or one part. No, 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 there's a lot going on here. I love it when they say, oh, black people aren't monolithic. And then they say, black people need to stop playing the victim. But that's a monolithic statement. No. There's things we got to work through. There's no shame in that. No shame in that. Jesus called us to this. He called us, at least here for right now. If you think otherwise, we support that. We understand. But for right now, this is where we are. He's called us to this. If you're Latino, he's called you to this. You have a theological gospel that you've inherited. So how do you guard it? Guard the deposit, the message and the morality. Don't listen to these cultural, theopolitical this stuff, man. It's not helpful. I'm not saying that there's nothing that is good that's coming out of it. I support police reform. I support it. There's a lot of stuff I support. I, I support the restraining of evil, no matter where, because I believe that's from God, whether it's from the church or not. I support it. I support all of it. Support restraining of evil in any facet. But I will not support anything, anything that tempts me to live in the, the immorality of the culture instead of the gospel. And I will not allow it to make me mock, especially those who are my brothers and sisters, because they may have different political affiliations than me. If, if, if that's where it's come down to, then you're not mature enough to vote. You're not biblically mature enough to vote then if you can't, if you're offended at somebody else voting differently than you or they don't understand the issues. You don't got it all figured out. None of us understand all the issues. That's why we trust God, because he does. We discern what the will of the Lord is together. And it's by recognizing, okay, we have an inheritance. We've inherited an empty way of life historically, but we've also inherited God's spirit of righteousness that we have to guard. So how do we do that? How do we make a covenant with the Lord? And we'll talk about that in two weeks. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us live in light of an inheritance. Help us to evaluate what's happening culturally, not by which political affiliation that we have. And if we do that, may it not only be that, but may it be, may we imitate Josiah as we look at the words that are in this book, the words that we read, and we see the disparity between what has happened now and what's happened historically. And as, like Josiah, we recognize that wow, we've inherited our ancestors. And by ancestors, I don't mean slave or masters, I mean just Christians. Our Christian ancestors in this nation, many of which did not present to us a gospel that we can run with, appreciate, be proud of. 
So I pray, Father, that you would help us to, to work through this as a church and, and personally, just like Josiah, do we work through it personally, communally, through our groups and things, through our church, nationally, through our community. Lord, help us to see that there is a way out, but it can't be the, the theological gospel that makes us adversaries of others. It has to be a different, the biblical gospel, that we acknowledge our inheritance. We acknowledge what our theology and our reality actually come together. They're not compartmentalized. Well, we think this way, but we act this way because we feel this way. No, help our theology and our reality meet. It's not easy. I fail at it all the time, but I'm trying not to. I am committed enough and concerned enough to try to do this, even in the moments that I don't. Lord, help us to not give ourselves, like I said in the, the message on preferences and personalities, to not allow our, justify our bad behavior based on our personalities, our political affiliation, or our, or our gender, or our, our age differences. Uh, Lord, that's, that, that doesn't do it. You've called us to something greater. Help us to remember that we do not battle against flesh and blood. For your glory and for our good. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. We have a couple of questions uh, this morning. Um, I'll start with this one. Uh, someone asks if Black Lives Matter is a judgment on the church. Can Black Lives Matter also be wicked as Babylon, which overthrew Judah? And will not God strike it down after the church has repented? I mean, sure, that could happen. Like, can that happen? Absolutely. I don't know what will happen. So uh, let me just say this. And I, again, I, you know, these things you can't prove, but this is what I think. This is what I think. I do inquire of the Lord. This is what I think. I don't think, I think judgment is early for us. I don't think we're on the, I don't think we're at the tail end of it. I think, I think the next couple of months is going to be even crazier than these months. I really do. I think until we find out once we, I mean, whoever wins the presidency, I think that's going to determine a lot of what happens. I think what we've seen right now is, is sort of organic, Anarchy on some level. Not like the peaceful march and stuff like that, but like taking over cities and throwing the police out and, and just, and then politicians just don't, I mean, it's just crazy right now. It's crazy. And so I don't, I don't know when the judgment began and when it ends. I just think we're in it. So I don't, and, and I don't know if Black Lives Matter is not a nation like the nations in the Old Testament where they're clearly defined. I think there are people who may agree with some tenets and go to a march and, and, and find there's some things that some things that are said very specifically, including the actual phrase. I, I, I understand what you're saying. I can support that. But there's a lot that you can't. So, again, it's hard to say, will the Lord do it like that? But sure. Kenny. Yeah. But Black Lives Matter is not like a nation. It's kind of a movement that I think is going to come and go like no movement lasts a long time unless it's been political or biblical like or religious so if it becomes like a religion or a real political movement then black lives matter will be around for a while that's what i think good question though 
All right. Uh, someone else asks if you could say more about the difference between compliance and, and inheritance, like how society focuses on compliance and how that is different from inheritance. Yeah, so I think compliance is you need to agree with the narrative. So if you're white, you need to agree with the narrative that black people say, it, or, or, or not, I won't even say it's just white because it's, it's ideological now. There are people on both sides. I know a lot of black people who are conservatives. It ain't just Candace Owens or you know, a few people. There's a lot of people that, I've run, that I have conversations with that are concerned. So it's ideological. You agree with the ideology. There's no room for nuance. So like, I might agree with some things that the Democrats do, which I think are, I agree with that. I might agree with some things that the Republicans do, but there's no room for individuality. So by compliance, it's, it's, it's either or. You're for or against. You need to, so if you agree with something that Black Lives Matter said, you're a Marxist. You're a cultural Marxist. You can't agree with nothing. If you think there's police protection, you're a Marxist. If you don't think this way, you're a white supremacist or you're a sellout if you're black. There's no room. So compliance is making you submit to a narrative that you have to agree with that's not biblical. I'm talking about these aren't biblical narratives. These are ways to see the culture that are based on philosophies that can be helpful to understand dynamics but not to be to have an allegiance to. So to me, compliance is, is it's, and a lot of it is economical, right? This is why I think, I mean, a lot of people, it ain't just me saying that. This is why these companies are all of a sudden like, hey, we're closing on Juneteenth. Hey, we're actually changing course, we're reversing. We said you can't support this on Tuesday, but now we got you, we got you t-shirts on Thursday because it's not politically correct. Compliance is about being politically correct. But you know what, the Bible isn't. Jesus wasn't politically correct at all. He was correct because he was Jesus. So I think inheritance, inheritance is about, it's more recognizing, seeing the culture from a biblical lens, what we've inherited in terms of Adam and Eve, the original sin, right? That we've inherited that, but we've also inherited Christ's righteousness. And we're in between this world of trying to figure out, okay, how do I guard the deposit? You know, I've inherited an empty way of life from my, for, for my fathers, and I get that, and I'm surrounded around people that have it. So inheritance is really about, I've inherited a biblical idea, a biblical reality, and I need to see the world through that. So I don't just see people as the liberal left or the conservative, where I don't see them as social justice warriors versus white liberals. If they're not Christians, I see them as 2 Timothy 2.26, that they've been taken captive to do the devil's work. So I'm not, why am I gonna get angry at a dude who does something when he's been taken captive? His biggest problem is not that he's a conservative or a liberal, it's that he needs Christ. So for non-Christians, that's, that's, so that's the difference to me between compliance and inheritance. That's some of them. There'll be more, there'll be more uh, a little bit tonight on Dear God. All right, thank you. Um, someone else uh, asks, um, is it safe to say that this division in the church caused by politics boils down to humility? <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, well, does it boil down to humility? That's In terms of the solution, mm -hmm. I think that's a, that's a huge step. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's part of the, what we'll talk about in two weeks, the covenant that comes with that. But I think it's, I think it's humility is, 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 a, is a mindset, but it's, it's definitely mm -hmm. more than humility mm -hmm. because it, it takes, and again, I know what you're assuming, humility, this is the thing. There's a, the, the part of the gospel that we've inherited is, is very word-oriented and not very do-oriented. Mm -hmm. 
So it's a lot of, we need to be humble, but then humility doesn't take any action. Mm. Let me say this. Biblical love takes action. Mm. Biblical love is not an emotion. It's not just stand back and call for unity. Biblical love takes action. It takes action. It's, it's a verb. It's things that it doesn't do and things that it does do. And I think we have to work through those, which we'll talk about in two weeks. But yeah, humility is a fundamental part of imitating Jesus for sure. Thank you. Um, someone asks, um, excuse me, um, when telling other people about Christ, how much time should we spend defending, defending or hating on this American gospel that we've inherited? Um, or do we just go right to the gospel and who Christ is? I, think, I don't think there's a cookie cutter way to do it because I think you're going to be interacting with different people. There are some people, I mean, there's so many different people. And this, so, yeah, this, one of the things I'm going to talk about, one of the traumatic impacts of the pathologies I talk about is what I call the myth of the monolith. And what's happened to our culture is we've become, we say we're not monolithic, and we, but we really talk about people in monolithic terms. And so we talk about people as if it's a one-size-fits-all. You can put, there's so many different types of people. So I think, I think we got to be willing to do both. There are people that I'll sit down and spend time with. I don't even get to the gospel. I'm explaining and I'm sometimes agreeing with what they've said their experience is of people who believe in Jesus. I will affirm that and I will acknowledge where I've done that too in order. I'm not going to say, well, I'm not, well, not going to sweep under the rug the evils of my ancestors. That's not what you do in the framework. That's not the Josiah framework. That's not it. We don't sweep under the rug. We do what we have to do. So, no, I'm not afraid to say, hey, man, you're right. You're right. People are like, man, that's a white man's religion. I'd be like, yeah, man. I used to think like that too, bro. I used to, I, that's one of my key phrases. I'll be like, I used to think like that too, bro. You used to think, I used to think like, what you mean? I used to think like that too. But then I realized and then I go in to some of the history that I know. And I just try to disprove that. So, yeah, I think, I think, I think we all need to have a little apologetics. Now, it's not necessary, but I think it's helpful. And I don't mean like Van Til or some real formal. I just mean we all need to understand the culture we live in and what are some of the objections to the faith that people have and be able to answer some of them. And so, yeah, I think we should do a lot of that. So I don't think it's either or. I think you, you, you want to give them the gospel if you can, but sometimes you might have to unclog the drain of their, because here's the thing. Other people are aware of the, what we've inherited. That's the point. Like, it's not just us. See, Josiah and them, it was just them that got it. But other people in America have, inherit, have inherited, they know the gospel of our ancestry that we've inherited. And, they, and that's, what, that's what makes them think the way they think. So, yeah, let's, we're going to do communion. You can get to me with any other questions if you have tonight. And dear God, I'm going to thoroughly walk through some things. So it's going to be a little bit more little more clarity on some of the specifics and the history of things so that we can get to a point of understanding this because you guys I'm, I'm here with you guys and we talk through this there's a lot of people that don't hear this stuff and this is why I'm preaching at 1:30 to another church because they don't have you know they don't hear the types of stuff that we're talking about I'm not saying because I'm that dude I'm just saying because we're talking about these things in ways that other people are not and we and we're thinking about some of these things in ways that even some of my other churches in the area that I'm friends with, they're not even thinking on the levels that we're talking to. Me and Mike were in a meeting 
with over 100 Acts 29 pastors. And after that phone call, we would look at, we talked to each other and was like, hey, man, we, we kind of are a little bit ahead of these folks in terms of what we've talked about with our church and what we're processing. They're a little bit behind us. They actually might need, actually, they need our help, to be honest. So, uh, but that's a, that's a different conversation. But we're going to take communion now. I, I know that we didn't, and I apologize for this. I've been really busy and I forgot to, uh, to, we all forgot this, to be honest, but I take responsibility for, I forgot to remind you that you could come get uh, your elements for communion. So we are going to take this now in just a moment. Um, did you, do you guys have, can we get Tim and his wife Beth uh, elements, please, before we do that? And then, but we'll do that in a second. So I want to thank you guys and definitely thank you for your prayers. Congratulations to Josh and Hannah and to Manny and Natalie, and then the next Saturday to uh, Lord Willing, Brandon and Danielle. So it's going to be a crazy, it's been a crazy, crazy weekend. I got one. Thank you, buddy. This is inheritance. This is. Theolitical, they don't do this. I'm not saying Christians don't who are theolitical. I'm just saying this isn't the theopolitical gospel. This is about inheritance. This is this reminds us that we're all together. This is a wonderful reality for all of us who believe in Jesus that we get to share. And I think this is one of the reasons why I think Jesus wanted us to remember this so that we remember the inheritance in him, because that's easy to forget. And because some of it isn't fully realized in this life, it's more by faith that we live in light of the inheritance. We're co-heirs with Christ and, and heirs of God. So we live in faith, and that's what makes it challenging because I can see where all the theological gospel is, is, is here now. That's what I can see with my five senses, the, the six senses. I see dead people. The, 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 the biblical gospel is more about faith and living in light of that truth because of what we read and what we see. It doesn't put its ultimate hope in who it votes for. It puts its ultimate hope in who it vouches for, and, and, and eternally speaking. And so this reminds us of that. So when we think of the biblical gospel, we're reminded that Jesus, as a, on a result, as a, according to his Father's will and his his desire to come to earth and to live, to be, to not just descend from heaven as an adult and then teach, and but to be born and to live as we lived. And as Hebrews 2, 14 through 18 talks about, he, he becomes like the children of Abraham. He has to learn. He has to be part. I mean, can you imagine Jesus having to be potty trained? I mean, he could have been in life like he just had to figure it out. But I imagine if he was a human being, he had to experience all of these things like we were. It amazes me that the profession that he chose was to be a carpenter, working with nails in anticipation of one day being hung by them. It is fascinating. And so today we celebrate his hanging himself on a cross, allowing himself to do that so that you and I could receive an inheritance that's not the formal way of life that, that, our, that our fathers did. It's a different inheritance because that inheritance from Adam that's transmitted to our fathers, our ancestors, that's not an inheritance that will help us after this life is over. But Jesus dies on the cross, rises from the dead, and then gives us his spirit and says, you have a new inheritance. You have a new family. And so in this moment, we celebrate that. So as we reflect, we pray, Lord, we thank you that you have given us a new inheritance. 
And you've told us, you've given us a book to help us understand the message and the morality, but it doesn't always help us understand all aspects of our, of our culture and what we ought to do. So you tell us that we have to discern your will. But in moments like this, we are reminded that the fact that we even have this in our hand is because you've given us a new inheritance. So Lord, we eat this bread or this whatever we eat that represents your body being broken on the cross for our sins. We eat this together now for your glory and our good. Let's eat. And Lord, you've given us a, 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 you've given us a measure of your grace and you've, you've de detailed it specifically in your word and you've told us, you've shown us, you've demonstrated that you, your blood was shed for the remission of our sins, for the forgiveness of our sins, for the justification, the, the expiation, the, the, all of the words that describe both big and small that summarize it simply say you have redeemed us, you have purchased us, you have bought us back, you have paid for our sins, you have removed us from the former way of life that we inherited from our fathers to a new way of life by this message and this morality, and you did that by shedding your blood. So we drink this in light of that memory, in light of that inheritance, to remind us, no matter where we vote, whatever party line we're on, whether we don't vote, wherever we are, we are one in you because of the blood that was shed. And this that we're about to drink reminds us of that. So Lord, receive this from us unto you as a reminder and a way to say thank you for your sacrifice on the cross as we drink together. Lord, now I pray that you would help us to guard the deposit that you have given to us. You said that to Timothy, but it wasn't just for Timothy. I pray that you would guard the good deposit that we've given us. Help us to guard it. And as we, as we talk about this inheritance, and as we think through our uh, 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 history, what we've inherited, it's not that we think all that has been done is evil. Absolutely not. There are wonderful things that have been true about your gospel, but they're mostly because of who you are, not because of who, what we've inherited. Our fathers presented to us a gospel that is badly damaged, badly misused, and has put people in different ethnic disparities, racial disparities, all types of economic disparities, sometimes because of just the way that this gospel has been so politicized and so intermingled with politics that we actually want the government to do things that you told the church to do. And so, Father, I pray as we try to discern what the will of God is, and as we in two weeks really focus on that fifth that fifth component of this, this framework from 2 Kings, the Josiah framework, that we get to covenant. What does that actually mean? What did it mean to, to them? And what does it mean for us in Jesus? So we thank you for your grace, Lord. Protect us all, both from the enemy and from ourselves where need be. For your glory and our good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, we'll see you guys tonight. On Dear God, don't forget there is no one another this Wednesday. It's the fifth Wednesday. Oh, it's the first Wednesday? Oh, it is the first? Oh, it's D group. It's D group. It's D groups this Wednesday. Don't listen to me. Listen to the calendar. Love you guys. See you.